So here we are again in Luke, starting chapter 7 today, and the first 17 verses. And uh, to begin this morning, I, I'd, like you, uh, I'd like you, if you would pull out your bulletins, um, if you have them. Uh, here's mine. So pull out your bulletins. And if you look at the front page of our uh, bulletins here, you'll see um, our church's mission statement right underneath um, the, uh, I don't know, kind of logo for our, our church, the blue writing and the, and the red cross there. And I, I don't do this much, but I, I, as I was studying this passage in Luke 7 this week, it, it kind of struck me how what we see happening in this passage goes right along with our church's uh, mission statement. Our mission statement reads, experiencing Jesus Christ, transforming lives through his word, prayer, and loving relationships. So I just wanted to begin by exegeting this mission statement for you just a little bit. Just notice the, the primary subject of our statement, that is, it's a person, Jesus Christ. He is the one that we focus on. Uh, he is the one that we exalt. He is the one who we want everyone to get to know. Why? Well, again, our, our statement tells us. That's the next thing here. It's because Jesus Christ transforms lives. We are all in need of life transformation. We all come into this world as sinners. We all have, have pride deep in, into our hearts, which that pride then comes out of us in many different ways. Our, our pride comes out in our, our selfishness in relationships. Our pride comes out in, in our anger when things don't go the way that we want them to go, or it comes out in the way that you know, we, we feel like we, we, we've not been treated with respect as we believe that we deserve by other people. Our relationships, our relationships then suffer because of our sin of pride, but our, our greatest problem is that as sinners, we are at enmity with God. In our sinful rebellion, we, we come under God's righteous wrath and condemnation for our sin. So therefore, we desperately need transformation. And, and the only transformation that will save us is the transformation that Jesus Christ can provide. And then back to our, our statement again, how then does Jesus Christ transform us? Well, primarily, he transforms us through his word, as well as through prayer and, and loving relationships. So, so this is why we spend most of our time on Sunday morning in the word of God. Our mission is to see transformation amongst us. And again, we, we admit that we all need transformation, and the only way that that happens is Christ Jesus working through his word to transform hearts and lives. Romans 10, 17 is kind of a banner verse uh, for me. It probably should be for all of us. It's faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We come to believe that Jesus is the Savior, that, that, that he is the Son of God, that he is the one who's able to transform us by hearing his word, by hearing his word read, by hearing his word taught, by hearing his word preached. And our faith is also strengthened and built up 
through hearing the word of Christ. And what is the word of Christ primarily about? Christ. It's about him, who he is and what he has done and and what he has taught us about himself and about how to follow him. And the more we get to know Christ, the more we'll be transformed. So then that brings us back to our passage here in Luke chapter 7. There is a, a transition from chapter 6 into chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we, we basically have four different scenes. Two of the scenes are what uh, Clint just read for us in verses 1 through 17. One of the scenes is in Capernaum. The other is in the small village of, of Nain. And then we will have a scene where Jesus discusses John the Baptist uh, next week. And then he'll answer uh, John the Baptist's questions about who he really was. And then in the final scene, he'll be in the home of Simon the Pharisee, where we will hear this question asked at the end of uh, chapter 7. It's in verse 49. It's in the scene of, of Jesus in the home of Simon the Pharisee. Here's the question asked Who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this? So Jesus left a lot of people wondering that throughout his ministry. Who is this? But Luke's purpose for us in chapter 7, I believe, is to help us to have an answer for that question. Luke is seeking to show us just who Jesus is. So coming to know and trust who Jesus is will lead to our transformation. It will lead to our being saved from the condemnation of God for our sin and will bring about eternal life for us as we come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We will go from being cursed by God to being commended by God. We will go from being full of sin and pride to being humble and completely dependent upon grace and mercy that Christ provides for all who trust in him. So so let us look into the word of Christ this morning and by God's grace, may we be transformed or continue to be transformed. Our main theme then from these 17 verses, we will be commended and blessed by God for trusting in the power and authority of the word of Christ. We'll be commended and blessed by God for trusting in the power and authority of the word of Christ. Of Christ. Our transformation comes by faith in Christ. This passage will provide us with reasons for putting our faith in Christ, as well as providing us with a good example of faith, of the kind of faith that Christ commends. So that's what we see first. Uh, faith that Christ commends, faith that Christ commends always has a humble view of ourselves. That's mainly found in verses seven, sorry, verses four through seven, four through seven of, chap- of chapter seven. So I'll just read through those verses there again. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. This is a striking passage because in verse 9, we see that Jesus, the Son of God, is amazed 
at hearing about a man's faith. The Son of God is impressed. Mostly in Luke's gospel, we, we've been hearing about how, how different people were amazed at Jesus. And now here, Jesus, the Son of God, was amazed at a person. In verse 9, Luke tells us why Jesus was so amazed at this man. Look, look at verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus was amazed at the faith that this Roman centurion demonstrated. This, this was a Gentile. He's a Roman military leader. And he showed a mature faith in Jesus, which Jesus had not yet found in all of God's people who were in Israel. Think about who that would include. It would include those he had called to be his apostles. So what was it about the faith of this centurion that particularly impressed the Lord Jesus? Well, first we see that it was his humility. It was his humility. Do you notice the repeated word used in the description of the centurion in verses four and six? Look at those verses. The repeated word is worthy, worthy. In verse 4, the elders of the, of the Jews use the word in describing the centurion to Jesus, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. He's worthy. The centurion's slave was, was deathly ill, and this, and this centurion cared, cared very much for him, and so he sent elders of the city to Jesus to plead on his behalf for Jesus to heal his servant. These elders were highly respected, in the community, and they also highly respected the centurion because he had showed such kindness to them and the Jews of the city by providing them with a synagogue for them to hear the word of God taught. In other words, these elders really believed that he was a good man because he had done these good works. Therefore, according to their understanding, if you do good works, then you make yourself worthy for God to act on your behalf. So they, they make the case to Jesus. He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and has done all these good works. Now, if you, if you think about it, that understanding of how it works with God is still very common in our world today. In fact, that is a common belief not only in our culture, but but in some of the other main religions of the world. If you do good things in your life, then you will earn good things from God, or you'll earn good things from the gods, or you'll earn good things from karma. That's just how it'll go. You, you do good, you'll earn good. Good things will be coming your way if you are one of those people who does good things. You donate money, you, you, you be kind to others, you, you be an all-around good person, and then God comes into your debt, so to speak, and owes you blessings. He is worthy to have you do this for him. These Jews believe that we cannot come to God and seek his help unless we are worthy. And the way 
to make ourselves worthy before God is to do good works, which make us a good person, one who is worthy to seek and to receive the Lord's help. Now, I'm not saying that these Jews believed Jesus was God at this point, but they, they knew that the healing power that Jesus had was from heaven. They believed that, that, that Jesus was someone who had divine power, had access to divine power, and the way to benefit from that divine power that Jesus had was to be worthy to come and seek it from him. But what, what Luke tells us next is that although this man may have, have been what the elders of the Jews believed, it wasn't the belief of the Roman centurion. It was not what he believed about himself or not what, what he believed, how it worked with God. Look back again, verse six and seven. And Jesus went with them when he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, see these are the friends speaking on, on, on his behalf, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. The Jewish elder said, he is worthy. But the Roman centurion said, I am not worthy. I am not worthy. And this is what stopped Jesus in his tracks. This was the first reason why Jesus commended this man's faith. The Roman centurion knew that even though he had done some good works, that he was still undeserving to have God do anything for him. He knew he was not worthy to come into the presence of the Son of God. He knew himself to be a sinner. He knew himself to be someone who was not righteous and, and thus was not worthy of the blessings that God had sent through his Son, Jesus Christ. His humility was the first sign for Jesus that this Roman military officer had genuine faith, that he was convinced of his unworthiness to receive help from the Lord. And yet, he still sought it. He still asked for it. Again, he's convinced he's unworthy of receiving it, yet he still seeks it. So what's that tell us? Well, a few years ago I read um, the children's books by C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia, to our children. And in, in the second book of that series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, four children find themselves in another dimension in the world of Narnia where uh, animals are intelligent and speak like humans. Uh, but, but there is trouble in the land of Narnia as it is under a curse. Therefore, it's always winter but never Christmas. Uh, but their arrival into the world of Narnia brings hope to the Narnians. They come to believe that, that Aslan is on the move. Aslan is a lion and is the creator of Narnia. He is the Lord over the world. The children hear about him from a family of beavers. And since they, they hear that he is a lion, well, the children get, get a little nervous. And so one of the children, Susan, asks, is he safe? Is he safe? And the beaver responds to her, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. In other words, he's not safe. 
but we're going to go to him anyway because he's good. So the centurion recognized the danger of coming into the presence of the holy son of God as someone who is sinful and unworthy himself. He knew he wasn't safe because of his great holiness, of his goodness. Peter had a similar response in, in Luke 5 when, when, when Jesus performed the miraculous catch of fish. Uh, uh, and, 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 and Peter, in his boat, realized the holiness of Jesus through this miracle. And he realized his own unworthiness to stand before such a holy God. And he cried out, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. But the centurion still sought help from the Son of God because he knew something, about, something else about Jesus. Yes, he is holy. Yes, he is righteous. Yes, he is fearful. But the centurion knew he's also good. He knew that that Jesus was merciful. He knew that because of the mercy and grace of God, that unworthy sinners can receive mercy and help from him if they humble themselves before him. So friends, what do you believe about who Jesus is? Do you believe that, that you, were, you are completely unworthy of, of having any kind of relationship with him at all because of your sin? That your, that your sin has separated you from him completely? And that even all of your, your good works that, 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 that you could possibly do, even all of those are stained by your sin and rebellion against God? Or do you really believe that, that, that if you do the right things, if you try hard enough, that you can make yourself worthy of God's blessings? worthy of God's help, that, that, that God would in some way be in your debt to treat you well. Well, the faith that Christ commends here realizes that our only hope for help and forgiveness from God is due to his mercy, to his goodness, and not anything in us. Secondly, we see that faith that Christ commends Trust in the power and authority of the word of Christ. The trust in the power and the authority of the word of Christ, found in verses 7 through 10 and then verses 14 through 17. Uh, the Roman centurion was called a centurion because he was put in charge of 100 soldiers. And he explained to Jesus through his messengers that he was a man under authority. He was under the authority of military generals over him, who were also under the authority of Caesar, but he also had soldiers who were under his authority. When Caesar wanted him and his 100 soldiers to march north to provide reinforcements to uh, another area, then the centurion would obey the orders and he would command his soldiers to pack up and prepare to move, which they would obey as well. So Caesar didn't have to go himself to provide uh, help to his army in battle. He would just give an order. And messengers would deliver that order, and the soldiers who were under him would move and go where he told them to go. The Roman centurion believed it was the same with Jesus. He believed Jesus was someone who had divine authority, supernatural, spiritual authority, authority like he had never seen or known before, much greater authority than Caesar could ever dream of. He believed that, that all Jesus had to do was say the word 
and his servant's health would be completely restored. He believed that Jesus' word had that kind of authority, that whatever Jesus said would happen. It would indeed take place. And of course, the centurion was exactly right in his belief, for as verse 10 tells us, his slave was made well by Christ's authority, even without Jesus saying anything. He just healed him from a long ways away after commending the faith of the centurion. And Luke then gives us another demonstration of the authority of Jesus' word in the next scene here in the the town of, of Nain. Out of the four Gospels, Luke is the only one to record this event, and I'm so glad he does. This is a moving scene. It's emotionally charged, and it reveals to us the compassion and mercy of Jesus in a wonderful way. After seeing what Jesus does here, I mean, how, how could you not want to follow him? How could you not want to please this Savior, to, to love him, uh, Seeing Jesus here makes me want to sing songs praising him and to serve him with all my heart. And and I hope you have a similar response to what we see here. I'll I'll read from verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd of the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. And the bears stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So so picture this scene. Jesus and his crowd of disciples are coming into this small village, and coming out of this small village is, is another sizable crowd, which is a funeral procession. Now in the Middle East, at that time, uh, once someone died, they almost immediately treated the body with spices, wrapped the body in grave clothes, and then carried the body out and, uh, uh, on, a, on a beer, which a beer is basically, basically a gurney, carrying the body, carrying the corpse out of the town and carry the body to the graveyard or to a tomb for burial. That happened just within hours after the death. Now, for our culture, of course, the funeral and burial usually comes days after the death of a loved one. In that culture, it comes hours after. In our culture, funerals happen after you've had days to reflect on what's happened, receive comfort from loved ones, and you've had time to to process it a little bit. In that culture, you are still under shock and intense grief and sadness at the loss of your loved one, and then all of a sudden, your loved one is carried out and put into the ground, and it's all over. And so on this occasion, what Luke tells us about, it was only, this was the only son of a widow who had died. So this widow has already lost her husband, already had to bury him, and now she has lost her only son, 
And in that culture, she has therefore lost the only protection that, 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 that she had and the only way for her to be provided for in her old age. Her grief then was not just over the loss of her son, but it was also infused with fear and anxiety as to what would happen to her now. How would she survive? What would she do without the support and protection her son would have provided for her? She was not only filled with grief, but had to be filled with despair as well. But then Jesus sees her. Jesus Caesar, whom, whom Luke describes here for the first time as the Lord, the sovereign one, the king. And how does Jesus respond to a situation when he sees the widow? He had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Which had to seem like a very strange thing to say. A very strange thing to tell a mother who was on her way to bury her son. I mean, this woman had every reason to weep and wail. She had just lost everything when she had lost her son. She had every reason to despair. But in Jesus' word was an incredible promise of hope. The hope was that Jesus was about to turn this woman's mourning into dancing. Weeping may tarry for the night, but he was about to reveal to her the joy that comes with the morning. The Lord Jesus then spoke these words. He gave the command to the young man, I say to you, arise. An impossible command. Yet Jesus demonstrated the same authority that the centurion recognized in Jesus he gave a word, arise, and it happens immediately. He spoke, and the dead man obeyed him. It says, and the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, what's interesting about that last line, Jesus gave him to his mother, is that it's not the first time that that line is used in the Bible. In the original language of Greek, it is the exact same line that's found in 1 Kings 17.23. In that Greek translation of the, the Old Testament called the Septuagint uh, that, that Luke read from, in 1 Kings 17.23, it is the prophet Elijah who raises the son of a widow from the dead and gives him back to his mother. So Luke's obviously making the connection here to the amazing work of the prophet Elijah to Jesus. Jesus is in that line of great prophets. Except, of course, that if you compare the two stories, the greatness of Jesus stands out over and above Elijah. For all Jesus had to do was speak once and life came back into the dead man. Jesus, command, uh, Jesus then commended the faith of the centurion because he believed in the power and the authority of the word of Christ. And then we see a demonstration of that power and authority of the word of Christ in the raising of the, the widow's son. Do we have that same trust in Christ's word? Do you believe that, that Christ will do what he said he will do? Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is? 
to have saving faith is to not just believe in Jesus, nor is it just to ask Jesus to come into our heart. To have saving faith is to trust with all of our heart that the word of Christ is authoritative, that it is right, that it is true, and therefore it is to be obeyed. That's what we see for kind of our, our ending lesson here. Faith is living like God is telling the truth. Faith is living like God is telling the truth. Now that, that line is, is not my own. I, I read that, that line from a book, which in that book the author was quoting someone else with that line, so I'm not even sure whose line it is. Uh, but it's a good way for us to understand faith. I think it represents well what the Bible teaches. It is a good way for us to examine our hearts to see if we really have faith. Faith is living like God is telling the truth. Do we live like that? Do we really believe that what God says in his word is true? Do you live like God is telling the truth regarding sin? That sin really is deadly. That sin really does lead to destruction. That no matter how pleasurable it might seem to us, that in the end it will kill us. That we should do all in our power to put sin to death in us. Do we really believe that? Do we live like God's telling the truth about sin? Do, do you live like God's telling, telling the truth regarding the only way to be saved from judgment and hell? That out of his great love for the world, he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, and that believing in him means obeying what he says, trusting what he says, doing what he says. Do you live like you believe this? Do you live like you believe God is telling the truth about eternal life and hell? That there really is a heaven to be sought after and that there really is a hell to be avoided at all costs? Do we believe that, that, that God is telling us the truth about these things? Well, again, our passage this morning provides us with the occasion that maybe more than anything else will reveal for us if we, if we believe that God is really telling the truth. It is a funeral. It is this funeral. And it's not just any funeral. It was a really sad one, a heartbreaking one, a widow mourning the death of her young son, her only son. There is nothing like a funeral to sharpen our focus on what really matters. My mom and dad were, uh, were down here visiting us a few weeks ago and those of you who have uh, settled away from your home like I have may re relate to this. Um, one of the primary subjects that my mom discusses with me whenever we get together is who has died in our hometown and how their funerals were. So last week, uh, she told me about Romaine's death and Romaine's funeral. Uh, Romaine was, was a dear old saint in our church one of the most encouraging and joyful older men in our church body. I always remember Romain having a smile on his face, a genuine smile. He reached 96 years old. He was a Navy veteran who served in World War II in the Pacific. A few years after he was married and started a family at the age of 30, 
Romaine was born again. He came to faith in Christ, and, and this hero, this veteran, who was on a warship that was attacked by a Japanese kamikaze uh, pilot, where in that attack, over 100 soldiers on his ship were killed, yet Romaine survived that. He had lived through that. That had to be an amazing story to tell, but Romaine rarely spoke of that incredible event. But he would tell you freely and often his testimony of how Christ saved him after he was married and had kids at 30 years old. How Christ gave him eternal life, saved him from his sins, and transformed his heart. Romaine's son Craig was a, a classmate of my parents in high school, and uh, he was a good Christian influence on my father. Uh, Romaine's youngest son uh, was one of my youth group leaders when I was in high school in my home church, and so he had a great influence on me for Christ at a crucial time in my life. Romaine's grandson was my classmate, and he is a faithful, godly husband and father and leader in his church today. And from what I hear from my parents, his funeral was one of the most hope-filled, Christ-honoring services that they had been a part of. How could his family have such hope in death? Well, it's because of what we read about here in God's word, that Jesus, the one God sent to save us, he can say to a dead young man being carried out to his grave, arise, and the dead man obeys and sits up and begins to speak. Because the Lord Jesus has promised that for all those who trust in him for their salvation, that he will turn our mourning into dancing and will wipe away every tear from every eye and will bring us to pleasures forevermore and joy that is unspeakable. Faith is living like God is telling the truth and living like God is telling the truth is transformational. I've seen that faith transform families like it did with the family of Romaine Kisher. And may that same faith in Christ continue to transform you and your family. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are humbled by the reality that one so great and holy would care to save sinners like us, would have mercy upon us. Help us, Lord, to know we are not worthy of your kindness and of your gifts, but yet you love to give them to us as we look to you in hope and faith. Continue, Lord, to transform us by the faith that you give through the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.